North Pole Hotline. Help! My in-laws are hosting Thanksgiving, and we're bringing the dressing. You mean stuffing? No, dressing. I need cute outfits for everyone. Get to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy's kicking off the holidays with stylish denim, velvet tops, the season's best dresses, and 40% off your entire purchase now through Tuesday. 40% off? We'll be stuffing our shopping bag full. And don't forget colorful sweaters and amazing outerwear, too. You can even buy online and pick up in store for free. Ooh, I love an all-you-can-wear buffet. Holiday your heart out at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1118 to 1120. Exclusion supply. See stores for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in to Dr. Low Radio. Happy Tuesday. Hope you guys all had a wonderful weekend. I know I did. I got to hang out with my great aunt of 90 years old. She celebrated her 90th birthday party, and she still looks pretty good. So I had a great weekend with the family, had a nice barbecue. We have a really good show in store for you guys tonight. I'm excited. I've actually been looking forward to this show for a couple months now. Um, I saw this book on Amazon that just totally pulled my attention. It was a really interesting title, and I said, I've got to interview this guy. So tonight we're talking all about the brain. We're talking about something called science help rather than self-help, and I think you guys will get a lot out of it. Um, but first off, if you guys are not fans of my Facebook page, definitely check me out, facebook.com slash Noel, and also on Twitter, twitter.com slash Noel, and the website, drlaurennoel.com. Make sure to check me out. I see patients here locally in San Diego, and I work with patients all over the country. So if you need someone to really figure out what's going on with you, why you're not feeling like a million bucks, then check me out. I'd love to support you in getting well. Tonight's guest is David DeSalvo. He is the author of What Makes Your Brain Happy and Why You Should Do the Opposite. So that is what really drew me in. I said, this is so interesting. i gotta got to interview this guy. David DeSalvo is a science writer and he's a public education specialist who writes about the intersection of science, technology, and culture. His work has appeared in Scientific American Mind, Psychology Today, Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, Mental Floss, Salon, Esquire, and other publications. And he's the writer behind the widely read blogs, Neuropsyched, Neuronarrative, and The Daily Brain. His first nonfiction book, What Makes Your Brain Happy and Why You Should Do the Opposite, has been translated into 10 languages and is available worldwide. This is a quote I, I saw from Psychology Today that says, DeSalvo offers science help as opposed to self-help by detailing the mental shortcuts our minds like to take, but that don't always serve us well with the assumption that understanding the brain function helps us fight its stubborn behavior. So hopefully we'll get some good tips tonight. And, David, thank you so much for being on the show, and welcome to Dr. Low Radio. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. I uh, listened to a couple audios of you today. I looked at some stuff on YouTube, so I got a little acquainted with, you know, just kind of, it's so different, right, to talk to someone versus read their book. So, um, But, yeah, thanks right. for being on the show. Where are you located, by the way? I'm in Orlando, Florida. Oh, okay, so you are up late. So thank you for being up late to be on the show. I really appreciate that. Oh, no problem. <laughs> is that going to mess up your brain function? <laughs> <laughs> no, the brain is, is very adaptable, I find. And when you're uh, writing books late at night to make deadlines, you you realize just how resilient your brain can be. I know all about that in medical school. I stayed up many a night. <laughs> cramming for tests, and it's amazing how the, the clarity I had the next day, but funny how it didn't all stick, so <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll get some tips on memory today. So how did you become interested in this topic, David, and why did you write this fascinating book? Um, I started becoming interested in the topic probably about 15 years ago when I was doing public education uh, campaigns for 
a lot of different organizations. I did uh, a lot of work with the Environmental Protection Agency doing public health campaigns about air quality and um, childhood lead poisoning and, and a lot of other issues. And in those campaigns, the goal is either to encourage a particular behavior or discourage a particular behavior. And there's a process that we all go through to get to that end result of behavior change, and it involves, first it involves raising awareness, and then it involves changing attitude, and then it involves taking action. So sometimes it's called the, the AAA approach. And what everyone working in that field knows is that getting to behavior change is extremely difficult. So I started at that time doing a lot of research about, you know, why is it that we can raise awareness among a, a target audience and, and even have people say, yeah, you know, I agree with this. I, I, I agree with the message you're giving me. And then they go and do exactly the opposite anyway. Um, so that kind of set me off on a path to, to research this and then um, kind of melded with a with a uh, interest that I've always had in, in psychology and, and sociology and uh, culminated about four years ago in, in working on this book. And it was a, a, a topic that fascinated me and I thought would fascinate others as well. So I pursued it. That's great. So did you yourself have some of your own patterns or habits or, you know, pitfalls that you were interested in overcoming? Was it just more of like other things that you see from other people? Oh, yeah, no, definitely. I'm, I'm you know, count myself among uh, my my subjects, <laughs> my <laughs> observational subjects, you know. it. And as a matter of fact, there's so much in this book that's, that, you know, where I reference um, – things that I've done or failed to do. And, you know, a lot of it's related to eating patterns. That's kind of a, one of my foibles, um, yo-yoing through life, you know, <laughs> going going back and forth on, you know, exercise routines or diet, new diets, and then, you know, being totally convinced that I'm moving in the right direction only six months later to be doing the exact opposite, you know. Right. So, yeah, yeah definitely I, I'm – you know, um, I was very critical of my of myself and using myself as an example throughout this, and um, and then also just found in talking to people, not just professionals in this field, not just psychologists and and uh, sociologists and so forth, but just regular people asking questions about things in their lives, and just found common themes and and trends that are, you know, pretty consistent among all of us. Mhm. Right. We're all the same. We all got the same wiring. It just might be a little different, you know, some alterations between us, but right. yeah, it's fascinating. So, your title is what makes your brain happy and why you should do the opposite. So, let's kind of dive into what this means exactly. So, what do you mean by a happy brain? Yeah, it's it's a it's a tongue-in-cheek title which I admit to in the intro. Um, you know, people see happy brain and they think of, well, actually have had some people, you know, come to me and say, well, why would I want my brain to be happy? I mean, this seems <laughs> absurd. Um, and what I mean by a happy brain is that our our brains have evolved a default mechanism, if you will, um, to guard us against threats, to, to predict oncoming threats and obstacles, and to identify rewards. And 
the brain seeks um, certainty, stability, a comfort level. Um, that's kind of the that's that's kind of the the point of homeostasis that the brain wants to be in, and it makes a lot of sense because if we were always constantly in a state of alert, um, you know, we would be at you know we wouldn't be able to continue on very long because our our you know we our, our heart rate would be constantly going too fast and our you know our nervous systems would eventually burn out on us so and at the same time we can't be just laid back and let things happen to us so the the brain wants this this kind of midpoint of homeostasis and that's that's what i mean by the happy brain now you might say well why wouldn't we want the brain to to have you know, why wouldn't we want homeostasis? And we do want it, but what we have to be careful of, and this is what the book is about, is that that tendency to get to that point um, puts us in some bad positions, particularly when we're making decisions about what's in our best interest in the long term. And mm. so it's really about the, the 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 foibles and the cognitive biases that we we trip on um, our brains trip on trying to get to that point of homeostasis. Got it. So that's kind of in a nutshell. We get off. We kind of get off on these patterns, right? Because they're serving us in some way, but they're not necessarily serving our our higher good or what we're ultimately committed to. Like it's not a match for what we want for our our life. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's that's part of it, and it's and it's also not. Um, it's also when we're in a position um, where there's a short-term reward is in front of us and it seems so accessible, um, but there's a long-term cost to getting that short-term reward that's being overshadowed. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, this applies to so many different facets of life. You know, yeah. and, 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 and at the same time, on the flip side of that coin is, you know, we – we react sometimes to things we perceive as threats that aren't really threats. And we, we, you know, we're, we're the only existential animal, you know, we're the only creatures on the planet who, who think about our thinking, you know, we're, we're constantly in this state of, uh, you know, overthinking We're we're, we're kind of all Hamlets in that way, you know, and, and so we're something, something that, you know, in our ancestral past would have been a physical threat, you know, of, uh, saber-toothed tiger uh, coming at us in the savannah. Now, you know, we have less of those physical threats and we have a ton of mental threats that we're constantly on guard for. So, so it's, you know, we're, the, the, the brain is kind of its, its own worst enemy in our culture because our culture has changed so radically, so much faster than the brain has evolved to deal with. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a big part of it as well. So what's an example of this? You know, I mean, it's it's cool and like in theory and just kind of talking about these patterns and how the brain works and stuff. But what's like one example of of this actually in real life? Uh, a really good example is something called restraint bias, and this is something all of us probably have have fallen prey to. And uh, I'll, I'll use a diet uh, diet scenario to give this example. You set off in earnest on a diet, and you you're doing really well and it doesn't matter what diet it is, you know, whatever it is that you're you're invested in, you're doing well on it. And you get 
let's say you get seven, eight months down the line and you've lost 30 pounds and you're looking great and people are telling you you're looking great and, and you're feeling better about yourself. So everything seems to be coming together because you've been so committed to this diet. So then you 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 say to yourself, well, you know, I'm managing this now, so I can start letting a few things slide. Um, you know, the chicken wings that I've been avoiding when I go out with friends, I think I can probably indulge in those a little bit. And, you know, the the beer I've been avoiding or whatever whatever it is. And so we start exposing ourselves to more and more of these temptations. And we all kind of have this, this zealous confidence in, in our self-control that, you know, we can, as, as long as we've made progress, we've proven that we can manage the situation. And unfortunately, we're usually wrong. Um, generally, what happens is the, you know, that's the beginning of the backslide. And a lot of times, the, you know, not only is the, the, the gains that were won through the diet lost, but we actually end up gaining more weight. Um, you know, over time, and then we're, we're, you know, we're kind of stuck wondering what went wrong. And there's that, there's always that point where, you know, we start making a decision to expose ourselves to more of the things that we should be avoiding. And it's, 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 it's a overconfidence that's fed by our success. So it's really frustrating because we are being successful. Um, but because we are being so successful, we become our own worst enemies. So that's that's one good example that I find a lot of people can uh, relate to. It's like our brain is lying to us and we're believing it. I mean, how do you get out of that? Like, how do you not fall to, you know, being a victim to restraint bias? Um, I, the, the, the biggest hurdle, hurdle to overcome with restraint bias is identifying the point where you're where you're starting to um, excuse yourself in a sense. You're where you mm-hmm. have, you know, as soon as you start saying to yourself, I've, I've conquered this. I'm over this now. I've managed it. So therefore I can reintroduce myself to the things that were once a problem for me because now that I'm managing it, I, 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 they're no longer a problem. As soon as that scripting starts playing in your brain, that's when you need to check yourself. Um, mm-hmm. and and say, okay, well, wait a minute, you know, is it really necessary that I go back to those things? I mean, maybe maybe a true lifestyle change is that I don't go back to that. Maybe that's really what I need, you know, and, and start asking yourself some of those tough questions. And I think when people do that and they start um, becoming very mindful of what's going on in their head, because... You know, it, none of us want to fail. It's yeah. we almost do it by default um, because we naturally think that success breeds more success. So if we've been successful, we'll continue to be. We've proven that we can be. Um, so you know, it's, you, you got to check yourself. You got to start asking critical questions, and and really, what you're doing is you're just raising your own personal level of awareness of what's going on. And if you do that you know, you're probably going to be fine because you're going to realize that you don't really need to go back to those things. You know, mm-hmm. they didn't they didn't help you to begin with. They're not going to help you now. Absolutely. 
Wow, it's so interesting. For those of you who just tuned in, we're talking to David DeSalvo. He is the author of What Makes Your Brain Happy and Why You Should Do the Opposite. The phone lines are open. If you'd like to call in and ask a question, the number is 818-495-6919. It's 818-495-6919. So, David, why why are we so prone to doing things that are not in our long-term best interest? Well, the the term that's generally used to describe this that psychologists and economists uh, both share this term is hyperbolic discounting. And what happens in hyperbolic discounting is we, we've, we've got two brain foibles, if you will, that come together and kind of create this, this catastrophe <laughs> that we don't realize we're stepping into. The first, the first foible is that we have a very difficult time placing ourselves in the future with any degree of accuracy. Uh, envisioning the future is, is not an easy thing to do because, for one, there's different contingencies that come up that we can't, can't anticipate. Two, um, we, we think we're going to feel or act a certain way under different circumstances when we don't really know we're going to feel or act that way once we're in a situation. So that all kind of combines to just making it very hard for us to place ourselves accurately in the future. That combines with another tendency, which is to capitalize on short-term rewards. And our brains are naturally wired this way. Um, you know, if, if the reward is in sight, it's pursuable, it's doable, I can get it, then I'm going to go after it. When those two things kind of come to a vector point, you get this, this cognitive bias called hyperbolic discounting. And the example I usually give to, as to how this plays out is when you go to buy a new car, and you sit down with the salesperson, and you're negotiating. And you'll notice that no matter what you try to, how you want to steer the conversation, almost always the salesperson will bring it back to your monthly payment. What do you want your What do you want to pay monthly? Yeah. Um, every time I've gone to buy a new car, that term has has been the centerpiece of the discussion. What do you want to pay monthly? And the reason is simply that. If they can convince you that your monthly situation is palatable, it overshadows what the long-term situation mm-hmm. is going to be. So if you can't really afford a car um, in a, on a five-year loan, well, we'll just make it a six-year loan. We'll just, we'll just you know, s- s- spread those payments out a little bit more. But what do you care? Because in any given month, you can afford it. <laughs> and, and, you know, we get caught up in that thinking, and as soon as you start thinking that way, you're stopped thinking about, oh, wait a minute, it's a, a whole other year of interest payments on this car. What's that going to be, another $6,000? Is that in my best interest? Probably not. Yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of where, you know, hyperbolic discounting really burns us. <laughs> because, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, particularly with something like a new car where you just want it. You know, you want to drive off the lot with that new car, that new car smell, and you just want to be proud of the car. And, um, and, and you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a character flaw that we all have that we do this. It's, it's a natural tendency of our brains that we have to be mindful of. And, again, we have to check it and ask ourselves the critical questions to kind of, you know, rewind the tape a little bit. Well, I think as a woman, too, you know, we kind of, the the emotional part jumps in, and we get the emotional connection to the car, like, you know, picturing driving with certain people or listening to certain music and the lifestyle that comes with it. And maybe men do it, too, but that tends to overshadow the whole long-term best interest, I'm sure. Right. 
Yeah, I think men fall prey to that too. I think I think um I think everyone has cars are a weird thing because we, we do have this strange emotional connection to them even though they're just objects. Um but we 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 tend to bond with our car. It's just it's a interesting it's, it's a subject unto itself and probably a whole other book. But uh, It's like our modern-day horse, you know? It's like we bond to the animal even though it's right, not alive. Right. I don't know. Maybe it's something old school, wired in us. <laughs> Very interesting. All right, cool. So let's take it to the phone lines. We've got a caller from the 804. You are on Dr. Low Radio. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hi, good evening. My name is Hugh. I'm calling from the center of the universe, Ashland, Virginia. Awesome. Thanks for calling in. What's your question? I have some synchronicity here because I have a business partner in Orlando who's a psychologist for 40 years. I'm wondering if Mr. DeSalvo would know Dr. Ed Maloney. No, I'm afraid I don't. Name doesn't ring a bell. Yeah, his website is attractingabetterlife.com. But I wanted to ask you related to... uh, synchronicities in the brain have you gotten into those areas and i have a self-taught expertise of what i term creative utilization of information and i work a lot in the spiritual realm and what your comments would be in your research if you've done any with the law of attraction um i mean some of the terminology here may we, we you know maybe uh, I may not be on the same page of music. When you're when you're talking about synchronicities, are you talking about uh, coincidences that aren't coincidences? Is that the, the synchronicity that yes, right? You, you only talked about. Is that what you mean? Yes, things that the, the odds of occurring would be astronomical, but they happen. Oh, I see. Um, I, you know, I can't say that that's a topic that I've dealt with very much. There's a, there's a, a little bit in the book about. Um, uh, the, the chapter is called The Seduction of Chance, which does mention a bit about that. Um, my personal position is that we, our brains are always looking for patterns and, and connecting, uh, whether they're events or people or places or things or whatever, we're always looking for a way to make connections between them. So I think a lot of the Synchronicities, as you would say, are, are kind of a natural result of how our brains operate because we are pattern-seeking creatures. Um, it sounds like maybe you're approaching it from a, from a different angle. I'm not. I'm not sure, but that's yeah. That's I, about I as deep as I've gotten into it. Virtual, because uh, I have a heightened awareness and I uh, get a lot of uh, messages or information, even from just being in nature. So yeah, it's a whole different area, I guess. Right. Yeah, that's certainly a very rich topic area, and and uh, you know, any any bookstore probably has a three or four shelves devoted to it. But um, I I can't say it's one that I've delved into too deeply. Well, it's going to play a bigger role in business because uh, uh, my big mission and vision is bringing spirituality into global economics and combining it with unconditional love. And I have a lot of documentation that can show it can very easily happen when people learn that we all have unlimited creativity and become more spiritual and caring and sharing with one another. Uh, That certainly sounds fascinating. It sounds like a a rich topic area. Yeah, so uh, my partner's 
website again is attractingabetterlife.com. I'd love for you to tell them that we spoke and to pick it up with him. And thank you so much for the time tonight. Thanks so sure, much for thank calling you. in. Take care. All right. whole different topic, I think, but very interesting nonetheless. Mm-hmm. All right, David, so what, what's a good example? And we kind of talked a little bit about, um, you know, the diet, lifestyle, that kind of thing, but I just think these pitfalls are so interesting. You know, what's, what's a good example of falling prey to this short-term thinking? Well, you know, like I say, any time um, there's an, an, you know, when we feel an urgency about a, or short-term reward, um, we have to kind of ask ourselves if that urgency is real or if it's one that we're imposing on the situation. And I give a very, this is a very banal example that's found towards the end of the book, but it's, it's it kind of puts this in microcosm. I talk about I, myself going to a grocery store, and I'm um, standing at the deli counter. I'm waiting for the, you know, we all been in deli counters where the rotisserie chickens aren't ready yet. They're, you know, and they're in the big oven in the back of them. They're, they're on the spit turning and waiting for them to come out. And there's a little clock on the oven so everybody can see how many minutes are left. And so I'm standing there waiting and, um, you know, I can see on the, the oven it says about three and a half minutes are left. Pretty soon some other people start coming up behind me and to the side of me and I know they're all waiting for the same thing. We're all standing there looking at this thing and for whatever reason, this tension and sense of urgency starts creeping up in me. Like, am I going to get my chicken? You know, I'm, I came here for the chicken. I, I, you know, and now these people are here, and now they're they're crowding around me, and we're all wanting chickens. Will there be enough chickens? You know, and it's and it's it's a, it's just a very funny example that that puts a lot of things in perspective because that's in, that's where you would stop yourself and say, well, okay, first of all. This isn't the savannah. We're not hunting here. Everybody's going to come. We're in a grocery store. Everybody's going to come out of here with food. Even if somebody doesn't get a chicken, they're going to get something else. Um, you know, am I going to die if I don't get this chicken? Probably not. You know, it, it, is it really a competition to get this chicken? Do I need to feel this sense of tension about it? No. So, you know, all but, but the natural inclination um, that our brain drums up for us, because it's looking right at the, we're, we're looking right at the reward. It's right in front of us, and we can see the time ticking down. Um, the natural inclination is to feel an urgency that doesn't really exist. So lots of times we have to we have to ask ourselves the question: are, Is this truly an urgency, or are we are imposing an urgency on something for reasons we don't even understand? Um, right. Because we're not aware of them. We haven't we haven't made ourselves self-aware of them. And once we do, we may, as in the chicken example, simply say, "This is absolutely silly." Right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's so funny. I'm sitting here just giggling because I have totally done that before. Just like if there's pizza, like the last bit of pizza, and I don't even eat pizza anymore. But still, I mean, just like that. It's that psychology. It's so funny. And I was I was thinking about getting off of a plane. This is a little bit different because there's not really a reward. But it's like when you're getting off of a plane, you just feel that pressure. Like the entire plane behind you is just waiting for you to just get your bag and get the hell off the plane. You know? Right, right. But it's like we have this pressure, and it's like, what's the pressure? We're just getting off of a an aircraft. Like there's no rush. Just Take your time, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, sometimes there's there's an actual reason to be urgent. But if if we look at you know the things throughout our day, throughout the course of any day, and we and we 
did a tabulation of what truly is an urgency and what is not, we'd probably all feel a lot better because we wouldn't be rushing around so much. We wouldn't be looking constantly for, um, you know, another short-term reward thing that that is tapped into by the marketplace is sales. Hmm, you know, right. oh, oh there's, a, there's a sale. You know, I mean, it, it, I mean, the 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 insanity of what goes on at Walmart's during Christmas, before Christmas, is is something that I just find totally fascinating. The people yeah. will sleep on the sidewalk waiting for the store to open because they're so convinced that they've got to get in there before everybody else to get the 62-inch, you know, diagonal screen TV that's on sale. And, and if they don't get it, you know, the, the world's going to end. Right. And people and then people are trampled. I mean, this is becomes a serious situation. People actually die over this, and it, it's it's a completely fabricated urgency, and it's just one that's tapped into by those who are marketing and selling us products. Um, and you know, if we just inserted a little mindfulness and and ask ourselves questions about why we're doing this. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I personally think we'd all feel a little bit better. We'd probably be a lot healthier. <laughs> our, yeah. You know, our bodies would thank us for not constantly being in a state of uh, revving our RPMs to, to to always constantly be going after something or getting somewhere. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Oh, man. So so this is like brain candy for me. I actually have a degree in psychology, so this stuff is just like so cool, so fascinating to me. One thing that is really fascinating to me is – the uh, the concept of autopilot. You know, we get stuck in these half-conscious states of mind. And tell us a little bit about that, and what are some of the dangers associated with it? So autopilot is, um, you know, we we you know we all have episodes during the day where we just kind of start drifting off and daydreaming, and for a long time, you know psychology and cognitive science research treated this subject uh, as something really not worth a lot of attention because, you know, it's just sort of like we're, you know, it's like our brains are are doing nothing during that period. And what we found out is that actually there's a lot of processing going on. Um, and we don't realize the processing is going on because it's it's, it's going on kind of behind the scenes. And so those periods of daydreaming or, or going on autopilot um, turn out um, to be pretty, pretty important to us because it gives us a chance to disengage from the immediacy of, of, of conscious awareness and for the, you know our brains to kind of engage in the processing you know that's going on behind the scenes without having to also engage uh, you know what's going on. In the you know our immediate environment, so the, there's a good side and a bad side to this. So the good side is, is what I just explained. There seems to be in research has has shown that there seems to be a correlation between daydreaming and being more creative, um, being able mm-hmm. to pro- solve problems more effectively. There's a lot of good things about this. The dark side of it is when it becomes something psychologists refer to as obsessive rumination. And that's when your daydreaming is is centered on extremely stressful things and you find yourself 
getting caught up kind of replaying a script about tension and stress and strife. And if you go there too often, it's very easy to um, kind of impose on yourself, a, you know, you, you're, you're, you kind of get into this routine of constantly going there. And once that happens, what the research shows is there's correlations between obsessive rumination and levels of depression, higher levels of anxiety, uh, mood disorders. So there's a good and a bad side to this. And what we have to be aware of is that the, you know, daydreaming by itself is, is, is something that's simply part of what our brains do. We kind of have to, though, be a little bit more conscious of the direction of our thinking, even though it sounds counterintuitive because we're daydreaming. But we do have a bit of a, uh, a piloting mechanism, if you will, to, to, to pilot through the daydreams. And we have to be careful that we don't get caught up in negativity because it's very easy to get stuck there. Mm-hmm. So we want we want the good side, you know, we want the creativity and the problem-solving benefits. We don't want the bad side. We don't want the depression, the mood disorders, and the anxiety. Right. So that's kind of the, the nutshell about autopilot. Awesome. Okay, cool. So, you know, in your book, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of brain candy. It's a lot of really interesting things to read, but you also give your readers some tips and some things that they can walk away with that will actually, you know, help them overcome some of their or avoid some of their brain faults. So can you share some of those with our listeners? Yeah, there's a section at, at the back of the book where there's 50 um, what I call takeaways or, you know, they're just they're – just, uh, some of them are, are summaries of points that are made throughout the book and some of them are, are new to that section. But there's some simple ones in there like slow down. Um, so much of what we're talking about can be solved if we would just slow down and, again, realize that a lot of these urgencies are self-imposed. We can raise our awareness in the few moments we give ourselves to slow down and think through something. Um, another one is we got to be careful about something called confirmation bias, which is something we all do, and that's that when we hold a position, whether it's a political position, religious position, uh, what a position on what breakfast cereal is the best to eat, you know, whatever it is, we tend to look for evidence that will confirm our position and we will ignore or discount evidence that challenges our position. And we all get caught up in doing that and it's, it's important that we broaden our perspective and you know, at least entertain the possibility that we, you know, might actually be wrong about part of this, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's another one. Um, um, something that a, a lot of people um, have talked to me about is goal setting and, and, you know, how does goal setting dovetail with a lot of what I'm talking about in this book. And it, it, it is a big piece of it. And one of the things that's that's kind of tried and true is that, when you're setting goals, make them tangible and make them measurable. You know, make it a goal that you can reach and and make it something that when you get to that point, you can actually um, go back in time and say, that, you know, this is what I said I was going to do and this is what I did and this is how it turned out. You know, you want 
And the reason why you want to do that is because your brain is a reward-seeking organ, and mm. it wants to have specific rewards set out um, to achieve. So goals are, are just another form of reward. Um, another one that, that speaks to a lot of us is I, I, my terminology is the hunt is more exciting than the capture. And this plays out a lot of times when we're on eBay. Um, and we find ourselves bidding for something and, and, you know, the price keeps going up and pretty soon the price goes above what we wanted to pay, but we keep bidding on it because we've got to have that item. And, right. you know, before long we're, we're paying a lot more than we wanted to pay, and but we win. So we're excited because we win. And then we have this kind of down feeling because the entire um, pleasure, if you will, was was kind of wound up in the pursuit of that thing. It wasn't really getting it. You know, the, it was, you know, what we, what, after we get it, we realized we paid much, much more for this thing than it's worth. And we, we did it because we were in this, we were under the influence, if you will, of, of going after the reward. So we got to be careful about that too. And, and uh, of course that, that applies to so many different things in life. Um, one one thing that a lot of people uh, have asked me about regarding the memory section of this book, and, and there's a lot in this book written about memory because there's been so much research, it's a very rich area of research, and it's it's a tough thing to accept, but we have to accept that our our brains are not these bookshelves where we put memories in books up on the shelves and then when we want to get them we just pull the book off and we go right back to the memory and it's perfectly there all you know arranged for us our brains don't we don't recall things that way we reconstruct things um, and what happens in 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 memory is that the brain there's always voids in, in memories and what happens is the brain fills those voids with um, other ideas thoughts uh, you know, things that may not have happened or didn't happen a different way. And so we kind of fool ourselves into thinking that we're, you know, we've got this perfectly recalled memory, but it's really a reconstructed memory. And this has a lot of implications for the, for the legal process because it's, it's you know, obviously affects witness te eyewitness testimonies, uh, you know, and it's, it's a it's a pretty serious thing because we have to ask you know can we really trust what somebody says they saw you know it you know the brain the brain you know we want to believe that that's true but the brain doesn't work that way so that's another one that's it's a big big section in the book discusses that um, and it's about it's about fifty of these takeaways and um, uh, a lot of people have come to me and said that they. You know, they found that this section to be the most helpful because it kind of put put a fine point on a lot of these things, you know, that they were able to actually take away and, and make use of in their lives. And that was kind of my mm -hmm. my big purpose in writing the book also was to write a book that would be useful. Um, I didn't want to write a book that would be an academic exercise. I wanted this to be a book that people would use. They would take away things and it would it improve, you know, actually improve their lives. Mhm. Mm That's great. What are what are some of the other responses that you've received about the book? Um, well, I'll only give you the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that's how uh, the brain works. No. The the uh, 
Um, no, I've gotten a lot of good, a lot of positive feedback. I mean, people have written me emails saying, you know, this, you know, particular section of the book really spoke to me, and and um, you know, I didn't even realize I was doing that, and I, you know, now I stop and think about whatever it is, and it 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 really has helped me make better decisions. Um, like I say, a lot of people have, have talked about the memory thing just because it's such a confounding area. Uh, in psychology right now that that um, so much research is going on about. But, you know, largely the feedback has been that there has been practical takeaways and people have found them useful, and that's been gratifying to me because that was, that was my purpose, uh, you know, was to write this to a broad audience that would be able to make use of, of the information. And that's that's kind of been the general feedback that I've gotten. That's great. That's really, really great. So is there, would you say that there's sort of a deeper message in your book that you wanted to get across that people might miss when you wrote it? Um, I, I wouldn't say there's a deeper message. I mean, I think, I think the message is simply that, you know, we have these tremendous, these marvelous organs in our heads that are extremely complex and extremely powerful. Um, you know, the processing power of the brain is something that we're, you know, just now beginning to understand just how vast it is. And, you know, it strikes us as counterintuitive that, you know, the the brain would um, trip us up, <laughs> as it were. Yeah. You know, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sense in which we are not our brains. Our brains are part of us, you know, the way our heart is part of us and our lungs are part of us. But but because the brain has sort of a directorial role in our in our personal uh, you know, movie, the the, the the drama of our of our daily existence, because it has such a, a strong role, we tend to uh, um you know think ourselves as the equivalent of our brains. Well we're really not, but you know we have we have the ability unlike other animals, we have the ability to think about our thinking, something called it's usually referred to as metacognition. Mm. And and you know, this is this is a distinguishing factor between us and even our closest relatives, the chimps. You know, we have the ability to to kind of detach ourselves mentally from the situation we're in and think through, even if it's just in you know, moments, you know, if we only have moments to do this, we have the ability to think through the dynamics of that situation and change the decision we're going to make. We, we, can, we mm. can change the next action step. Um, and I think that's probably, you know, the, the big message here is that we all have that ability. We just don't engage it very often right. um, or often enough. And and sure, there are instances where things are just moving so quickly. But there's there's simply no time to, you know, insert mindfulness, um, and, and that's definitely true. But more often than not, if you looked at you know just what goes on through the course of an average day, more often than not, we're not in those pinch moments. Um, mm-hmm. We're in situations where we can assume some mental detachment, and we can think about our you know what we're doing and check ourselves um, and and ask a couple of, 
you know, internally ask a couple hard questions, like like if you're buying a new car, ask yourself, do you want to pay um, another year's worth of interest on this car, or maybe you should get a cheaper car. Um, you know, those those are the kinds of you know, and, and none of us want to do that because when we challenge ourselves in that way, we risk not getting the thing that we really want, right? Or we, or we think we want, and. I certainly don't want to be, you know, known as as the the uh, the, the Grinch who stole everyone's reward. You know, I mean, I think we we can have a lot of what we want. We just got to be a little bit more careful about how we go about it. And yeah, um, and you know, and maybe tailor our choices in different ways that we're not thinking about. You know, just that's kind of the, the big message. It's not really a deeper message, but it's it's kind of the, the overriding message of the book. No, I think it's a deep message. You know, it just gives us a, a, a chance to really get out of our own way and kind of understand some of these pitfalls our brain has so that we can not be a victim to it and be able to, you know, just kind of decode things and, um, you know, not, not be on autopilot like you said. So I think it's great. Um, one thing I was I was uh, remembering when you were talking about um, about memory was how, you know, we we forget a lot of things. We kind of fill in things, fill in the gaps with whatever, you know, with stories. And I think a lot of times we tend to forget how great we are and how many things we actually have accomplished. You know, we're very hard on ourselves, at least I am for myself. I tend to forget all these things I've accomplished. I forget I'm a doctor, like, all the time, you know. So <laughs> one thing my, my boyfriend did, and it's really cool, I think it's such a great practice, and I want to do it myself and even encourage some of our listeners, is that write down a list of accomplishments. Anything you can possibly remember that you've accomplished throughout your entire life, just start writing it down, and you will be amazed at all the things that you've accomplished. Something as simple as learning to tie your shoe, learning how to use the, the toilet, to, you know, whatever is bigger in your life that you've done. I mean, for him, he's written 14 books, you know. Like, he's written all the, all these things down, and it's like, after a while, you go, I'm pretty freaking great, you know. And it, so you rewire the way that you relate to yourself and the way that, you know, how memories appear to you in your own your own life. So what's up with that with the brain? Why is that so good to do something like that? Um, why is it difficult for us to to do that kind of thing, to go through that kind yeah, of exercise? Yeah, why, why is it that, that we, I mean, at least for myself, I'm so much harder on myself than I am to someone else. Like if someone else had accomplished the same exact things that I have, I'd be like, you're a rock star. Go go you, you know. But me, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm all right, you know. So, I mean, there's that, um, you know, why – with memory, why do we fill memory with things that you know that don't serve us? I guess. Well, I think it's it's again it's a mindfulness exercise that you're talking about. I think you have to stop yourself. You have to you have to go through a process of self awareness to to be able to even write the list you're talking about. You know, you do have to spend right. some time, and that and that forces us. You know, just by itself, that that means you have to stop what you're doing. I mean, you have to get out a little bit out of the routine of your day, which is. You know, generally the routines of our day are 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 made up we, largely of requirements we have to meet. You know, at our jobs mm-hmm. or at, at home or whatever. So it requires you know coming out of that to do that. It also requires that we um, we do some self empathizing. This is mm-hmm. something we don't do a lot of. I mean, we're we're much better at empathizing with other people and and much harder on ourselves. And while that's not an area I've explored in, in much depth, I just know intuitively that, you know, we're, we are all much more critical of ourselves. And mm-hmm. like you say, if somebody told you, 
you know, if somebody if somebody told you all the things they did, and they and they happen to be just like all the things you did, you'd say to that person, "Well, you're very successful and very accomplished." But right. for some reason, you don't think of yourself that way. And you know, I, I think I think kind of it comes down to a little bit. We got to give ourselves a little bit of a break. Yeah. Um, you know, we're you know, and and this again, it just comes back to stopping detaching, thinking through this and and going through the exercise. I think you make an excellent point that there's you know, there's exercises like you know, simple, as simple as writing down a list of accomplishments that are very important because there's something about the process of verbalizing or writing, you know, getting it mm-hmm. out of you and seeing it on paper um that is very powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like it doesn't become true until you can see it. And, you know, once you go through that process and you, you create that list or you write, you know, your CV or whatever, and you look at it and you say, well, that's, wow, that's me. You know, I really have done these things and this really is right. important. And, and they don't have to even be professional accomplishments. I mean, I think people people sell themselves short in all sorts of ways in, ter- in terms of what they've done for their family, Um sacrifices they've made for, you know, family members or friends or whatever. I mean, these are, these are all different kinds of accomplishments. So we have to think a little more broadly, too, about, you know, the, the even just the term accomplishment and achievement. You know, what does that even mean? Got to think a little more openly about that. Yeah, absolutely. For sure, totally. Well, I encourage all you listeners out there, write, write your list of accomplishments and let me know what comes up for you if you have any eye-opening moments. I'd love to hear about it. Um, okay, cool. Well, David, is there um, another book you're planning on writing, or what's kind of on the horizon for you? Uh, yeah, I'm actually finishing up another book that's tentatively called uh, Brain Changer, mm-hmm. and um, it should come out in the fall of 2013. And I'm excited about this book because it, it kind of picks up where the where my last book left off, and it it goes more deeply into the application of things. A lot of the, a lot of the, you know, the takeaway points, and gets into some different topics like metacognition, for instance, uh, mm-hmm. gets into that fairly deeply, and feedback loops. What, you know, how our brains are like these constant feedback loops of, you know, information going in, being processed, and resulting in action. It talks a lot about that kind of process. So, it, it's a, a book, a book again that, you know, I, I, I always write things that are. You know, of interest to me because I think, you know, I'm part of that broader audience that that are also interested. You know, because I'm not personally a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Um, you know, I'm a science writer uh, who's mm-hmm. had, you know, this tremendous curiosity for, for all these things, and I think a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this book will again tackle a lot of those things that I think people are just interested in, and you know, it helps. Hopefully, it will help folks. It just as it helps me in writing it to know ourselves better. And you know, I think when we know ourselves better, then we're able to make better decisions. And I think generally we lead more fulfilled lives. For sure, I couldn't couldn't have said it better. I love it. Well, where can our listeners learn more about you and keep up with what you're doing? Uh, they can go to whatmakesyourbrainhappy.com. Um, or DavidDesalvo.org will take them to the same place, and that's um, a website that has information about this book, um, has 
lot of other things that I've written, um, interviews I've given, things like that, if there, anyone's interested in those. And, and uh, a lot of other information is there. So whatmakesyourbrainhappy.com. Sweet. Awesome, David. Well, any anything else you'd like to leave with our listeners before I let you go? Um, simply that, um, I hope everyone who, who has an opportunity to read the book uh, enjoys it and gets something out of it. And feel free on that website, there's a place you can send me an email. If you have something good or critical to say about the book, I'd love to hear it. Feel free to drop me a line. Awesome. Well, you have a great night. Um, I'm sure it's close to your bedtime, or maybe not, maybe your night owl. <laughs> but either yeah. way, I hope you have a great night and uh, look forward to talking to you soon. All right. Thanks very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yep. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, you guys, that's our show. Thanks for tuning in. I love that it was you know, a different type of show we normally have. It's really, really interesting stuff. And I recommend you do pick up David's book, David DeSalvo's book. It's really great, Major Brain Candy. You know I love my brain candy. It's what makes your brain happy and why you should do the opposite. So check it out. You guys can check me out, drlaurennoel.com. Hope you have a wonderful night. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. This is your wallet. I've got my hands full with your credit cards, ID, and that Froyo loyalty card. So I was thrilled to learn about the new digital wallet in the Giant Eagle app. It'll let you store, manage, and spend all your gift cards right from your phone. E-gift cards you buy from Giant Eagle and GetGo will load automatically. And you can even transfer plastic gift cards there, too. Download the Giant Eagle app and start using the digital wallet today. Visit GiantEagle.com backslash wallet for details. North Pole Hotline. Help! My in-laws are hosting Thanksgiving, and we're bringing the dressing. You mean stuffing? No, dressing. I need cute outfits for everyone. Get to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy's kicking off the holidays with stylish denim, velvet tops, the season's best dresses, and 40% off your entire purchase now through Tuesday. 40% off? We'll be stuffing our shopping bags full. And don't forget colorful sweaters and amazing outerwear, too. You can even buy online and pick up in store for free. Ooh, I love an all-you-can-wear buffet. Holiday your heart out at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1118 to 1120. Exclusion supply. See stores for details.